You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Fancy bears and free-ranging catfish disport themselves in the Czech Republic. China's reported to have used watering hole attacks to gain entry into Australian institutions. Cora suffers a data breach. Marriott's breach response earns mediocre marks. A Kubernetes privilege escalation flaw is found and patched. Two scammy apps are ejected from Apple's App Store. And an object lesson in the difficulty of controlling fake news, or at least fake op-eds. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, December 4th, 2018. Reuters reports that the Czech Republic's BIS-IS counterintelligence service yesterday attributed last year's cyber attacks on the foreign ministry to Russia's GRU, also known, of course, as Turla, Sophocy, and Fancy Bear. At the time, the ministry said the incidents appeared to be the work of a foreign intelligence service but they were unsure which one. The foreign ministry said no confidential material was compromised. BIS said that some 150 staff mailboxes were accessed, with the GRU copying emails and attachments. The report sees this essentially as battle space preparation. As BIS puts it, the GRU, quote, thus obtained data that may be used for future attacks, as well as a list of potential targets in virtually all the important state institutions, end quote. Another recurrent warning that figured in the report, widespread use of undeclared intelligence officers operating under diplomatic cover. In fairness to Fancy Bear, Russia's not the only espionage power being name-checked, checked, <laughs> in the report. BIS also points out that the Chinese services are also quite active, Their interest is characteristically industrial espionage. The Sydney Morning Herald has, in this context, an interesting account of how China used watering hole attacks to gain a foothold in the various Australian institutions Beijing's intelligence services were interested in prospecting. A visit to the watering holes provided the entry point for installation of malware tools into a leading foreign policy think tank, the Lowy Institute, as well as the Australian National University. Last week, the big breach news, of course, was of the goings-on at Marriott. This week, another large breach has been reported. Quora, the widely used question-and-answer site, was hacked, and the attackers made away with passwords, names, email addresses, and direct messages belonging to some 100 million users. The stolen passwords are said somewhat vaguely to have been encrypted, Ars Technica thinks this probably means that they were passed through a one-way hash function. Which function matters? Some are relatively easily cracked with off-the-shelf tools. Others are strongly resistant to breaking. 
Quora discovered the breach Friday. Causes remain under investigation. Marriott is not drawing good reviews for its response to the breach it disclosed last week. The hospitality chain is, for example, using the domain email-marriott.com to send notifications to the half billion or so affected customers. But as TechCrunch points out, that domain is easily spoofed by typo squatters, and several security firms working gratis and pro bono have preemptively registered several of the more plausibly typo-squatting domains. Observers see a string of breaches going back to 2015, beginning shortly after Marriott's acquisition of Starwood's properties and reservation service. The breaches mostly involved Starwood, with many missed opportunities to prevent the recent problem. A lesson being drawn is that corporate mergers and acquisitions represent a clear cybersecurity danger point. Google researchers found a privilege escalation flaw in Kubernetes. It's now patched. Users should upgrade. The issue will also be addressed in forthcoming releases. This is believed to be the first significant vulnerability to be discovered in Kubernetes, and it's serious enough to warrant a CVSS score of 9.8. Exploitation of the bug could enable an attacker to obtain full administrative privilege on any node running in a Kubernetes cluster. Do you carry more than one mobile device? Does your company insist on keeping your online personal and professional lives physically separated? Or do you carry one device and carefully commingle the two? Brian Eggenrider is from mobile device security company SyncDog, and he joins us with some perspective. We're kind of in an imbalance or, or a, an interesting intersection in the market where you know, a lot of people are out there carrying two phones around, a work phone and a personal phone. In fact, we often see, you know, the people's work phones are like an iPhone 6, for example, and their personal phone is an iPhone 10. Mm. And, you know, you have that disparity of like, why am I using this older technology when I'm carrying something right beside it? That's that's much better. Or conversely, people that are allowed to use their personal phones for work often have to sign documents that say, if you leave the company, that company has the right to wipe your entire device, which creates kind of this big brother aspect or lack of trust between the employee and the, and the company. The reason they're all being done is that companies are simply apprehensive or concerned about you know, where that data is and how they can control it. Now, I mean, part of this is is practical as well. As the price of these uh, mobile devices goes up, you can understand uh, where the the whole notion of people bringing their own devices could be attractive to a company who might not want to foot the bill for that. You're you're absolutely right, and and we, you know we always see too that people don't treat their work devices the same they would with their personal device. You know, when when you've shelled out you know thousand dollars on your own or you know twelve hundred dollars now with some of these newer iPhones, if not more. You know, you take care of that. You're concerned about it breaking and losing. When it's a work device, you're like, whoops, I dropped it. No big deal. They'll just have to get me another one. Yes, companies are becoming more and more apprehensive about this because everybody is now using a smartphone for their personal device. So you can't get away anymore with handing somebody an iPhone 6 or, or an older technology. It, it becomes a, a deterrent. You know, it used to be, hey, we're going to give you an iPhone for work. And it was, you know, it, it was a selling appeal for a company to bring somebody on. Now, if it's not the latest and greatest, it, it's actually hurting their reputation versus helping it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think uh, as those mobile devices become more uh, a primary device in our lives, it seems like uh, that has shifted quite a bit. Absolutely. In the work world's changed. You know, the, the nine to five job you know, doesn't seem to exist anymore. The 
how we say the yabba dabba do time where the, the bell rings and you slide down the back of the dinosaur and your day <laughs> is done and you don't think about work anymore is long done. So, you know, people are working certainly not 24 hours a day, but throughout all times of the day, you know, and, and travel and, and just, you know, the, the world has definitely become more mobile. So being constrained to the four walls of the, of the corporation and only being able to access, you know, sensitive data while you're there is just unrealistic. And so you have to find a solution that enables people to get the job done while they're outside the four walls of the company. Yeah, it, it strikes me also as interesting that there hasn't been uh, more, more of a response for this sort of thing from the manufacturers themselves, from, from Apple and, and, and Android. Clearly, there's a need for this. Uh, you know, we have multiple logins on our desktop computers. It seems like there's a market opportunity here to, to be able to segregate your personal from your professional life uh, on a single mobile device. And yet that, that isn't really being filled by the, the manufacturers themselves. Yeah, you know, and some have tried, and some even have products out there right now. But as as you're probably not surprised by, you know, uh, Samsung, for example, has a product, but it's Android only, and it's Samsung Android only, and only on some of the devices of Samsung. So they have something, but obviously they're like, hey, we're not going to give anybody an excuse to not buy a Samsung. So they they completely focus on that environment alone, and that's just not realistic. You're going to have Android and, uh, and iOS users you know, across the board in any company of any size, really. It's, it's, there are definitely users of both technologies, you know, anywhere you go. That's Brian Eggenrider from SyncDog. Fingerprint ID, like the Touch ID system featured on iOS devices, is attractive for many reasons as an authentication measure. It's difficult to spoof, for one thing, the hot epoxy gummy bear hack featured in the first Ant-Man movie aside. But it needn't be spoofed if a user can be induced to let their finger do the walking through a couple of payment approvals. That's been the case with two scam, or at least scammy, apps, Fitness Balance app and Calories Tracker app, both of which Apple has now booted from the walled garden of the App Store. The two apps displayed a message telling people to keep their finger on the iOS Touch ID feature, Meanwhile, flashing a quick payment window, likely to be unnoticed because it was for most intents and purposes in the background, and only up for at most two seconds. Keeping your finger on the pad, of course, authorized a payment, whose authorization was acknowledged in another flashed pop-up that also probably would go unnoticed. Even if you did notice it, that hundred bucks or so was already gone, baby, gone. So farewell to Fitness Balance and Calorie Tracker. We hardly knew you. Robin Sage, please meet Tatiana Horakova. You two should really talk about trolling for catfish. Sure, your personae are entirely fictive, but in this day, who would be so narrow-minded as to dismiss someone's life experiences and the voice they contribute to our mosaic of discourse on the legalistic grounds and pedantic grounds that such a person doesn't exist? Take a broader view. Don't view Robin Sage and Tatiana Horakova as names— but rather as definite descriptions, like the present King of France. Bertrand Russell would get it, and so can we, right? Anywho, you'll remember that Robin Sage was the name of a fictitious person used in an experiment in gullibility conducted in 2009. She was socially constructed in social media as a 25-year-old cyber threat analyst for Naval Network War Command with a degree from MIT and 10 years' work experience. 
She attracted dinner invitations and job interviews from at least two large and famous corporations, whom we won't name because at this point shaming would just be piling on. Not everyone was taken in since some people bothered to check the phone number provided in contact information or looked into MIT alumni records or simply found the idea that anyone could have accomplished by the age of 25 what Miss Sage claimed. In any case, experimenter Thomas Ryan blew the gaff with a presentation at Black Hat in July 2010, so Robin's run lasted less than seven months. Ms. Horakova has had an even longer, more illustrious career, and she's successfully trolled, among others, the Prime Minister of the Czech Republic. Ms., or perhaps more appropriately, Dr. Horakova, has a knockout resume, founder and director of a medical not-for-profit that sends physicians into conflict zones. She arranged the release of Bulgarian nurses held by the late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi, she offered herself in exchange for a hostage held by FARC guerrillas in Colombia. She turned down no less than three Nobel Peace Prize nominations, got a big humanitarian grant from the Vatican, and lots of other good stuff, too. She's also a frequent contributor of high-minded op-eds to Czech media outlets. Foreign Policy pedantically objects that there's no evidence Tatiana Horakova exists. Says you, Foreign Policy. If she doesn't exist... How has she succeeded in showing up in Czech newspapers for more than 10 years? Explain that. Actually, there probably is an explanation. Reporter Prokop Vodraska of the skeptical paper Novi Denik thinks it's just someone sitting in a flat laughing at everybody. It's like a character straight out of the good soldier Schweik. If you want a serious take on the difficulty of controlling for fake news, however... Look no farther than Tatiana Horakova. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, it's great to have you back. Um, we, we had a story come by. Uh, this is from TechCrunch, but it certainly made the rounds uh, uh, in the press about uh, some security researchers who found uh, fundamental weaknesses in the encryption on several uh, crucial and Samsung SSD drives. You know, these are our, our storage devices. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, these researchers were looking at uh, hardware-based encryption. That's uh, encryption that's being done um, uh, at the hardware level, uh, done by the disk drive itself that a user might buy. And uh, the findings of these researchers were actually pretty scary. Uh, basically, when they looked at what was actually going on, when they physically examined these hard drives, they found that in many cases, it would be very easy for an attacker to bypass the encryption that had been done and recover a user's files. And that's exactly the sort of thing that these uh, encryption uh, encrypted hard drives are supposed to protect against. And what, so what was going on here? Was this a flaw in the implementation of the encryption in the hard drives, actual hardware? Yeah, it was a flaw, not so much in the implementation of the encryption itself, but in the, uh, in the way that the keys were being managed. So hmm. just as an example, on many of these hard drives, uh, there would be a default password that was set uh, at the time of manufacture. And if the user didn't go ahead and, and change that, then that default password would allow an attacker to uh, have access to the contents of the encrypted drive. So you can be using the best encryption in the world, but if there's a default password that everybody knows about that's being used, you're not going to get any protection from that. Yeah, it's interesting that, that on the software side that uh, I suppose many, uh, many systems were just taking the security of this encryption for granted. If the, if the hard drive said... Uh, or the SSD drive said this was encrypted, then the system would say that's good enough for us. That was a very interesting part of this attack, actually. So uh, I guess exactly what you said, uh, people who were using software encryption, those software encryption schemes would basically trust the underlying hardware. And if the hardware would tell them, yes, you know, don't worry, we're encrypting stuff, then the software would not go ahead and encrypt. And, uh, you know, really what you have here, you can think of the hard drive as lying, right? It's telling the software that it's doing proper encryption when it's really not. And so I think that the uh, software, the, the, the software encryption algorithms are now going to be updated to encrypt anyway, even if the drive tells them that, they're doing, that it's doing encryption. Now, what about some of the developments? For example, I know um, Apple has made a lot of, uh, out of their T2 chip. They've taken that encryption onto a dedicated piece of hardware, uh, you know, a secure enclave uh, off of the hard drive and, and separate from taking that, that, uh, that workload off of the main processor from the computer itself. They, they say that increases security and speed. Right. So uh, the devices that are put out by Apple were not uh, affected by this particular line of research. Uh, of course, you know, until somebody actually looks at what's going on, uh, we, we can't really say much about the security of those devices. But I think in general, Apple has a has a pretty good track record of uh, building secure devices. I, I think the, the global message here really is that the algorithms that are being used need to be uh, open source so that they can be evaluated by security researchers. One of the problems in this example here is that the Samsung drives, for example, uh, were not revealing exactly what algorithm they were using for their encryption. And so there was no way really for anybody to analyze it 
short of going in and actually physically trying to attack these drives. Mm. And I think Apple has done a, a pretty good job of, of at least releasing the high-level um, details of their design, even if they don't release uh, all the details of what they're doing. No, it's interesting. All right, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Great, thank you. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.